to see you. Settle down. Hey, is there anyone here from Open Door Mission? Anyone here from Open Door? John. Hey, hey John, could you stand up for a second? I know, I know John has contact. Hey, Jack and Martha, that's John right there. Can you talk to him later? He has connection with Open Door Mission. You're wondering what's going on. I'm not, I'm not setting up a date. We don't do that. Um, um, maybe an opportunity for someone at, at the... Well, and, and I wonder what took Gail so long. <laughs> yes, sir. Jack, see that man right there? Can you all talk before you leave? Okay, good, good, good. Wish the president wouldn't call me at times like this. Say no, I'm busy. Okay, good. Thanks for doing that. Hey, we're in Philippians chapter two. Did you know that? So let's turn there. I'm not going to delay because there's a lot of good stuff in there. So I thought we'd just get into it. While you're turning there, first few verses are Paul's way of exhorting the believers in Philippi to be together. A big deal for him was unity. Not that we all think alike, look alike, dress alike. That's uniformity. No, no, he's not talking about that. He's talking about unified, being unified, uh, having unity about spiritual things. Namely, we've all been, those of us who are redeemed, redeemed in the same way by God's grace. Second, he has the same mission for all of us, and that is to live in such fashion that people see him in our lives and are open to us talking to them about him. So these are the things all believers have in common. And along the way, there's lots of room for difference of opinion, not a problem. Paul is just saying don't divide over things that are not the essential matters. So that's what he's been talking about. And now, to sort of uh, persuade us and his original readers, the Philippians of this, he's going to give us some more exhortation and an ultimate example of humility. So let's pick it up now, verse 3 of chapter 2. So that's the background. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. You know, the whole concept of humility was not a virtue in the ancient world. To the ancient Greeks, it was a thing to be avoided. You do not want to humble yourself before anyone else. It's a sign of subservience, and subservience is to be avoided. You are to assert yourself. You climb. You don't diminish. That kind of deal. The New Testament elevates the notion of humility to a high level. It's a virtue, a high virtue. And Paul is saying this is one of the keys to unity. Regard those around you as being more important than you. That's a tall order. But good night, if we could pull that off, what a difference that would make. And so he says in verse 4, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. That's essentially what he's saying. In other words, in the body of Christ, there's no room for numero uno. I am number one. It doesn't work that way. It means we defer to one another. It doesn't mean we become non-people, 
doormats with no bounds. No, no, no. But our interests, if overstated and which could divide, are to be sublimated to this interest in taking an interest in the interest of others. In other words, dividing over musical styles is not pleasing to God. There have been times in this church and others when I sit in a worship service and there's a song that has little or no appeal to my ear. Uh, I'm just not going to make it a bone of contention. I'm just going to put the best construction on it and thank God it's going to end in two or three minutes. (laughs) And if I have a preference for a different kind of music, that's why God created CDs. Go buy one, listen to it on your own. But to divide over those things is to take an interest in your own interest. See, that's a personal preference. That's not a biblical standard. Paul says you cannot compromise biblical standards, but personal preferences, for sure. Whole churches divide over things like that when we're in a real battle of much more uh, greater import than asserting our personal opinions and tastes. So... um, Now Paul ups the stakes because his listeners are saying, well, man, Paul, that's easy to say, but not so easy to do. And he agrees. So therefore, as an incentive for doing it, he offers the premier example of humility. Here we go, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So now we're going to look at uh, how Christ lived out his life because he's the exemplar of humility for us. Who? Although he existed in the form of God. In your Bible, do you have a phrase like that? Form of God? Everyone have that? Something like that? Listen. um, The one English word form uh, has two Greek words. There are two Greek words which when translated say the same thing. Form. But those are two different Greek words. This is not a Greek class, but I think you're going to get something out of this. One of the Greek words for the word form is morphe. Sounds like morphology, morphe. The other is schema. Morphe means the essential and unchanging nature of someone. Schema means the external and changing appearance of someone. When it says here, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, I want to ask you, what underlying Greek word do you think is used there? Morphe or schema? Morphe, remember, essential and unchanging nature. Schema, changeable external appearance. Which word for form do you think is used here? We're going to vote on it. How many people think it's the word morphe? Would you raise your hand? There you go. Thanks. How many people think it's the word schema? Raise your hand. There you go. Okay, the vote carries. Um, The majority rules. You done got it right. It's the word morphe. It's significant. You know what's being said here? This Jesus, who although he existed, you know what that means? Pre-existence. You and I had a beginning. I can prove it to you. Well, everyone in here who has one, point to your belly button. (laughs) That means we're not self-generated, but God is. He has no beginning nor end. This is a reference to his pre-existence, and only God possesses pre-existence. This is, in effect, a declaration of the fact that Jesus is God. 
He who existed in the form of God, meaning before time, then, now, always, this Jesus has the essential nature of deity, morphe. It's his unchangeable, essential nature. He took on the form of a man, but he did not in any way cease being, in essence, God. That's what's in view so far. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It's a contrast between Satan and Savior. Look, Satan was not God, but sought to be equal to God. Isn't that the sin of Satan? He said, I will be like God. The one who is not God sought to grab onto divinity. But the one who is God willingly let go of it, Jesus. See the contrast between Satan and Savior? This Jesus pre-existed in the fullness and the essence of God, but chose not to. It says he didn't grasp onto it. He didn't grab onto it. What does that mean? It means he didn't, he didn't claim it, his divinity as a right. In fact, he laid aside his divine privileges to come to be here and look like you and me. He reduced himself. He condescended. It means he didn't pull rank. He didn't say to one such as you and I, who do you think you are? You know who you're talking to? I'm not coming down to your level. I'm surely not going to occupy a cross in your place. I am God. No, he didn't grasp onto his divine prerogatives, uh, though they were his, and foist them as over against his incarnation as a man and his death as a man. Though he existed in the essential nature of God, pre-existed, always possesses the essential nature of God, he didn't lay hold to his divine privileges such that he would be kept from humbling himself and becoming a person. Instead, verse 7, look, but emptied himself. Now, what is your question? When you empty, let's say you have water in a glass and you empty it. Doesn't emptying imply a kind of subtraction? notion of subtract I mean you're subtracting a volume of water from that container when you think of empty you think about getting rid of something so here when it says he Jesus emptied himself we could expect what did he empty himself up what did he give up but it doesn't say that it says he emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant that's very interesting he emptied himself by adding something, not by subtracting something. And what did he add to his divine nature? Well, it says there, taking the form, there's that word again, form, of a bond servant. Now, I want to ask you a question. We're going to get to vote again. Two Greek words for the word form. This is the same word form. Morphe, essential nature. Schema, outward appearance. Morphe, like morphology. Schema, kind of like uh, scenery in a, uh, a, in a theater. So I ask you, when it says here, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, which of those two words for form do you think it is? Do you think it's morphe, essential and unchanging nature? Or do you think it is schema, merely outward appearance? And so now we get to vote. How many think in this case the word for form is the Greek word morphe? Would you raise your hand? Okay, there you go. One brave... Uh, person soon to be 
excommunicated from the church? <laughs> How many people think it's the word schema? Raise your hand. All right, there you go. Well, brother, what could I tell you? Numbers don't lie. This is a grand case of how, though the majority rules, the majority is not always right. Everyone who voted schema is wrong. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's the word morphe. Why? When Jesus, who existed in the morphe of God, took on the form of man, he just as much existed in the essence of humanity. When Jesus became a man, he's not fooling anybody. It's not a charade or a delusion. He, he, he experienced full humanity. For instance, he got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got humiliated. He got rejected. He got misunderstood. He got prejudged. All the stuff that humankind experiences, he experiences except for one glaring difference. What do you think that is? No sin. If in his humanity he came to be sinful, that would have compromised his divinity. Remember, divinity is his essential nature. One of the unchangeable characteristics of God is holiness, no sin. God is holy. Jesus is holy. Jesus didn't cease to be holy when he became man. He did not empty himself by giving up his divinity. He emptied himself by adding to it humanity. Folks, Jesus was fully God. And at the same time, Jesus is fully man. Now, how does that work out in practice? This is the subject matter that theologians have invested in for centuries, even debated over it. It's called, and my goal here today is to impress you. Yeah, not that you would grow, only that you would be impressed. So here's this word, hypostatic union. Hypostatic human, union. It means the full deity and full humanity of Christ in union, and how do they work out? For instance, if Jesus, who is fully God, existed in the morphe or essence of God, was also fully man, does that mean Jesus laid aside his omniscience? One of the characteristics of God is that he's omniscient. He knows all things about all things all the time. Did Jesus lay aside his omniscience when he became man? This is part of the discussion. What about omnipotence? Another distinctive of God that separates him, creator, from us creatures. Uh, to what extent, if any, did uh, Jesus lay aside in some fashion his omnipotence? And all the, so this is the theological discussion. And after tracking it myself, I've come to the conclusion in answer to the question, how do these two natures play out? The answer is nobody knows. Absolutely nobody knows. And why is that a problem? Uh, how can it be that we would think the goal in life is to fully comprehend the incomprehensible God? I mean, if we got God figured out, he'd be like us. We'd be his equal. We're not. He's greater. Can you explain to me the Trinity? How do you explain how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit work things out in the Trinity? 
Folks, to fully comprehend something is not required to fully believe in that same thing. These are very believable truths. Why would we question the very reliable God? To understand him fully is another thing. By the way, we do things all the time we don't fully comprehend. For instance, do you fully understand electricity? I mean, one or two in here do. I got you. But most of the time, you know, I just get home and I just turn on the switch there and something happens. But, it, but I don't know from point A, flicking the switch and light. I don't know how what happened there. You know, it might as well be magic. I have no idea how that whole thing happened. But I, but I, I embrace it as being a, a reality and, uh, uh, you know, a, a truth. So there are many truths in the Bible which, though we cannot fully understand, ought to be fully believed. And here's one. God, uh, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. How that specifically plays out, I don't think any of us know uh, for sure. Yeah, brother, I think you had you. Yeah. Thanks. No. <laughs> it refers to the incarnation in time when he, when he, born in Bethlehem of a virgin, became enfleshed, came through her birth canal just like you and I did and all that other kind of stuff. Yeah. This is a good observation, though. So look, verse 8, being found in appearance. Oh, let's vote one more time. Do you see the word appearance? That also is the word that can be translated form. This is the third occurrence of it. So this leads to the question, what is the underlying Greek word for this word, appearance? Is it the word morphe, essential nature, or is it the word schema, outward appearance? So being found in, is it morphe or schema as a man? Let's vote. How many people think it is morphe? Raise your hand. Okay, how many think it is schema? Raise your hand. How many people think you have humiliated us one too many times? <laughs> I am not coming out. There you go. Not, there you go. Not good. Okay, here, no tricks. It is the word schema. Listen, he existed from before time in the essential nature, unchangeable nature of God. He took on the essential nature of man. In appearance, however, though he looked like man, he ain't. That's a changeable kind of a thing, and one day we'll see him glorified entirely. So what we're reading here uh, is one of the most important passages in all the Bible if you want to keep out of cults. If you want to avoid cultic thinking and not be sucked in by cults, if you get this passage... It, the humanity and divinity of Christ in one body, uh, the mixtures being distinct from one another and neither being compromised. If you get that right, you'll be less prone to get involved in occult or cultic thinking. For instance, I'll try not to uh, mention names here or anything like that because I want to be sort of diplomatic, but uh, there is a cult group, and uh, they state that Jesus is a God. But that, that's not right. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus is the God, not indefinite article, definite article. And they're very certain that Jesus is a God to the extent that they go about witnessing that. And they witness to the fact that Jehovah God, look, I didn't mention any names, I'm just telling you. They witness to the fact that Jehovah God is God, but that Jesus is a, a lesser God God. 
who has emanated away from Jehovah God in the fullness of his deity. So Jehovah God is God. Jesus is a God in a lesser sense. But you see, that flies in the face of what we're reading right here, which says Jesus possessed the same characteristics of divinity, namely pre-existence. The only pre-existent one is God. Jesus existed previous to creation. He's not created. He is the creator. So Jesus is pre-existent. Secondly, Jesus pre-existed in the morphe of God, essential nature of God, not diminished deity, full deity. Thirdly, Jesus came to occupy the external appearance of man, but underlying the external changeable schema, scenery of man on the inside, he uh, occupied the full essence of humanity, yet without sin and yet without compromising his divinity. No, Jesus is not a lesser God. He is the God who became the God-man. So, Tom, I think you had it in your hand. Uh, a lot of things. Yes. So, Tom is actually bringing up quite a good point, and I don't want to uh, unduly offend anyone. That is a poor translation of the phrase. And I know the King James is so beautifully read, and I know you... You got it from you, your, your King James Bible is your, from your beloved great-grandmother who's now at home with the Lord. I got all that, and I don't want to take it away from you in any way. And just as other translations maybe don't handle certain things, perhaps as well as the King James, in Tom's very good illustration, that is a very incorrect rendering which plays right into the hands of groups like that. And that's not what the Greek says. You had that experience, yeah. Yeah, that's what they'll, they'll do. But here, here's my point. Uh, this particular passage we're looking at right now is called the kenosis passage. Kenosis. It's another Greek word. It comes from the word empty or emptying. This is the self-emptying passage of Jesus Christ where he explains to us his humanity and divinity. Using this terminology, he has emptied himself of deity. How? By taking on. He didn't, he didn't lose his full uh, divine nature. He added to it his human nature. This particular passage has served believers well throughout the centuries. If you get this right, you will be less prone to get involved in a cult because every major cult group is off either on the divinity of Christ or on the humanity of Christ. If you get it together, fullness of deity, fullness of humanity in one body, his divinity not being compromised, he being fully human except for sin, then you'll be less prone to get hooked into a cult. Yes, sir. So our brother's saying, how does this fit into the Jewish understanding of the Son of Man? Could you say more? I'm not sure what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. 
So our brother is correct. The son of man, which is a term the Lord took for himself, and he uses more often than any other in the New Testament, he's specifically doing it, if this is what you're saying, then I agree with you, because he is using that very phrase in Daniel to make an association between what Daniel said and himself. He wants people, Jewish in particular, to see, I am the one who Daniel spoke of. Here's the problem. The Jewish understanding of the Son of Man was that he was not divine. So they were off, still are, in this very area. Jesus was a rabbi, fully human, did the best thing he could, but he's not God. See? So that's, that's exactly, that's a great observation. Okay, so being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember, Paul's whole point here is not to give a theology lesson only. It's to give us the premier example of what he's asked us to do at the beginning of the chapter. And that is uh, subordinate yourself to the interest of others. And when we say, oh, God, how could I do that? He says, your Lord did that. He subordinated himself. Though God, he didn't cling to it as a right. He didn't pull rank. He set it aside by taking on your appearance so that he could reach you. You couldn't reach him no matter how your high your ladder of good works extends into the heavenlies. It falls short of the glory of God. Therefore, he condescended to Give you access to him by becoming one of you. You couldn't get to him, so he got to you. That's what essentially Paul is saying. So for those of you who think, oh, no, you got to look out for number one. If you don't stand up for yourself, no one will. Give that person a piece of your mind, you know, all this kind of stuff. Regardless of the fallout, he's saying, what if Jesus pulled rank? What if he said, I'm God from before time. I'm not going to become one of you. In fact, Paul said he not only became one of us, he was obedient to the point of death. What does that mean? Do you know death is an act of obedience only for God? Because God, by definition, has no beginning nor end. For God to die is an act of submission. For you and I to die is a requirement. There's no escaping it, folks. For you and I, dying is a necessity. Hebrews. Uh, and we shall all die once. It is appointed for men to die. All you got to do is ride past the cemetery, go to the next funeral, and you're going to find out. This is the way of humankind. We got born, and we're going to die. That's the way it is for us. We're, we don't get brownie points for dying. But Jesus does. It was an act of obedience for the pre-existent God who has no beginning nor end and existed in eternity past and into eternity future. It is nothing short of an act of obedience for him to die on the cross. Paul is foisting this up to us as a premier example. If he's your Lord, go and do likewise. Don't lay claim to your own rights and privileges. Don't say, do you know who I am? What if Jesus said that? No, no. Humble yourselves. In fact, he died, not just a normal death. It says right there, even death on a cross. Now, the folks to whom Paul was writing were Roman citizens, and they knew about crucifixion, you see. It wasn't a Roman invention, by the way. It was a Persian invention. Persian inven The Persians came up with this uh, means of executing 
uh, folks. And then the Romans uh, barred it from the Persians and they perfected it. The Romans found out ways to elongate the process of dying while impaled on a cross, thus to be a deterrent to those who would dare challenge Rome. That's why Jesus, remember, hung on the cross for six hours. So, um, so uh, Paul is saying he not only became obedient by submitting to death, but, uh, but uh, the most humiliating form of death, this was not the way uh, to go. I mean, taking a bullet is, would be much more noble than dying on a cross. It was a humiliating way to die. The victim was stripped naked and impaled on this uh, tree uh, in a public area in the marketplace, again, as a deterrent. Um, Paul said, while you're struggling with your own rights, <laughs> what if Jesus said he asserted his rights? He had a right not to die. He had a right not to die in this way, and he didn't grab onto his rights, though they were his divine rights. He didn't do it. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even by dying on a cross for one such as you and I, and shouldn't we be willing to humble ourselves before one another? That's the point of all this. So this passage is called Christology, the study of Christ, meaning if you get the person of Christ right, you'll probably be right about just about everything else. But if you get the person of Christ wrong, you're going to be wrong about a bunch of other stuff. He's fully God. He's fully man, yet without sin. We have to get that right. Yes, brother. Yes. What a great thing. Our brother's saying, is this more of a creed? Many scholars believe, yes, this was um, a creedal statement for the early church, almost a song. Now, we sing songs today, oftentimes not uh, containing the depth of theological truth that this, if it was a song, did. They taught the early church. They taught theology through their songs. Uh, today, uh, oftentimes, we're teaching a very self-involved in approach to God. Uh, songs talk about more of you, give me more of you, give me, give me, give me, give me. How about giving some of you to God for crying out loud? But anyway, that's, that's my, this is my personal opinion. I don't upset the apple cart. I just go and I, uh, you know, I, uh, I mumble the words and, uh, and inside I'm thinking whatever I want to think. And then I'll go home and find songs of depth. Um, this was probably a hymn of the early church and it became a creedal statement which served them well in the early centuries of the church. And we can be served well by it even today. It's the humanity, it's the deity of Christ. And now look what happens. Lest you think, man, what's with that guy up there? All this stuffy doctrine. Yeah, you're right if we stopped right here. But that's not the way you do Bible study. First, you study the Bible to be informed. Then, based on how you have been informed, you, you get to be transformed. In other words, truth 
and then application of the truth. Paul has just given us truth, Christology, truth about Jesus. And now he's going to say, now do something about it. And that's what happens in verse 9. For this reason also. What reason? Well, everything he just shared with us about what Jesus did. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. He reduced himself. He condescended. He, in verse 8, humbled himself. It wasn't imposed upon him. He volunteered to do it. Because he did all that, became enfleshed, though he had the prerogatives and privileges of deity from before time, he set them aside in some way we can't fully explain. Though he did all this so that he would obediently die, even an excruciating and humiliating death on a cross, because he did all this, God highly exalted him. And in this, you see something which is a paradigm for all those who follow Christ. And I don't like it, neither do you, but it's true. First comes the humiliation, then comes the exaltation. Folks, there will be a day when we will, Christians will be recognized to be children of God, royal nation, holy priesthood, and all the rest. For now, Christians increasingly around the world are being put down, oppressed, humiliated, persecuted, even put to death. Christian studies are indicated are now becoming the most persecuted uh, people group on the face of planet Earth. Christians. You cry out, why, God, why? Folks, this is the way it was with our Savior, and the servant is not greater than the master. First the humiliation, then the exaltation. In other words, we're prone to ask God when things are going bad. When we're being reduced, we get a cancer diagnosis, we lose a job, we're involved in an accident. It's normal to say, why, God, if you love me and if you're good, Folks, first the humiliation, then the exaltation. A loving father says, I know what you want, but I also know what you need. You need an enhanced sense of dependence on me. You have to condescend. You have to submit to me. I can produce it through pain. I won't impose pain on you, but I will allow you the experience of the pains of life because you're in better shape then to cling to me for blessing. You have an enhanced sense of your humanity and your need, and you will humble yourself before me when you need to me. The lesser depends on the greater. I will allow you the throes of life so that you, the lesser, will realize it. You'll humble yourself before me, and you'll run to me, and I'll carry you through. And one day, know that the best is yet to come. First the humiliation, then the exaltation. And if we dare to rebel against it, he says, what about me? First my humiliation, then my exaltation. It says here, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above all names. So that, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Three realms in heaven. Angels, on earth, us, under the earth, demons. In every sphere in the creation order occupied by created beings, one day, heavenly beings, demonic beings, earthly beings, will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who's been spat upon, stripped, naked, humiliated, and impaled on a cross. One day, every knee shall bow. One day, after the humiliation, the exaltation. And all this, also verse 11, that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Now, here's something else in theology. Some people argue, which is it going to be for you Christians? Is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be God? Now, you may be saying, what do you mean? They're one and the same. But if you think that's the majority view, you're wrong. There are many people who are going to say, obviously, Jesus was a lesser God than God the Father or no God at all. And your preoccupation, your focus of attention on this Jesus insults God the Father. Yeah, but this passage tells me not only does it not insult God the Father, (laughs) but when we confess Jesus as Lord, it redounds to the glory of God the Father. See, I can use this passage to smack someone in the face. I don't see God the Father, neither have you. He's made himself visible through Jesus the Son. Everything I need to know about the unseen God, I can find out by running to Jesus. The first chapter of John says he has explained him. He has revealed him. So to worship Jesus not only is not disrespectful to God the Father, it redounds to the glory of God the Father. That's what Paul is saying. Okay, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence also, uh, only, but now more, uh, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see what he's getting at? Brilliant theology lesson. Look what Jesus did. Now go and live the Christ life. Die to self. Sublimate your interests. Stop thinking you got to share your divisive opinion with everyone. Harmony in the body is more important than you getting a hearing. Remember who you are in light of what Christ has done and work out your salvation. Notice, it doesn't say work for your salvation. Nope. Work it out, implying it's already there. If you're a believer, the Savior has already saved you and implanted his redemptive work in your life. He's actually bequeathed to you his own presence, his spirit, the Holy Spirit in you. Paul is simply saying here, as one already saved, work it out. Live in light of who you are already in Christ. Why? Verse 13, because it's, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See the word work? It's the word energon. What does that sound like, energon? Energy. Be energized to live the Christ life because God is energized in working a work in you. In other words, Paul says, you're in league with God Almighty. Live the Christ life knowing that God is in partnership with you to enable you to do that very thing. Verse 14 Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Interesting. My people, ancient Israel, we were experts on grumbling. You know, we get liberated from bondage and slavery, and we're out in the wilderness, and we start grumbling to God's leaders, Moses. What did you bring us out here? Man, we could have died back in Egypt. Remember all that stuff? Grumbling. Now, I know it's easy to point the finger at Israel, but the only reason Israel's shortcomings are put on such prominent display in the Bible It's because Israel is you. Human nature has not changed. Israel is us. Israel is a mirror. We grumble and groan today in the church just like Israel did in her wilderness wandering. Listen, see the word grumbling? Listen to this Greek word. Gangusman. That's the word for grumbling. Gangusman. It's something called onomatopoeia, which sort of means 
Hey, the meaning of a word is, it's, is what it sounds, the word sounds like what it means. Gangusma. I mean, it's not a pleasant word, is it? I mean, it's not the kind, of, it's not the word that's going to appear in like a, I don't know, a ballad someone writes and sings to their little children. Gangusman, go to sleep, little baby. Gangusman. I mean, it's going to scare him half to death. That's what it means. It's a distasteful word which represents a distasteful thing amongst God's believers. Do all things without grumbling. That's what Paul says right there, without grumbling or disputing. Why? Verse 15. So that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. You know what Paul was saying? A number one way to undermine the cause of Christ is for people out there to see grumbling in here. Number one way to undermine the cause of Christ is to be a cynical, angry, unattractive representative of Christ out there. Because we've been put, it says here, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, all of us know we're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I mean, many of us are disgusted with what's going on all over the world. In political circles and every kind of circle, stuff is happening. And we lament that. But I'm telling you, we couldn't be in a better spot. What good is it to be, as it says here, a light in the world if the world doesn't need to be illuminated? Good night. We're put in the midst of a dark, crooked, and perverse generation so we can appear as lights in the world. And one of the ways to diminish the light is to be an ornery, angry, bitter, cynical, worried, unattractive Christian. Someone said, I commend cheerfulness as a means of evangelism. Folks, we got to attract people to us before we attract them to our Lord. And some of us are so caught up. With the stuff of the day, we're not very attractive at all. Try smiling a few times a day. It wouldn't kill you. We do not have the freedom out there to uh, express our uh, frustrations with life as we might think we do have the freedom to do because we represent Christ. An ambassador for any nation does not have ultimate freedom. you got to be careful what you do and say, well, we're better. We're ambassadors for Christ. We have to be careful about how we represent ourselves in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation so that we could appear as lights in the world. And how to do it? It says holding fast the word of life. It's like a torch. Hold fast truth as if on an uplifted torch in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And don't let the fire be extinguished by you being given to disputation and grumbling. A bad attitude. You represent the Lord, so do I. And if you say, no, I have a right to be who I am. Well, this is my, Paul's point. What if Jesus asserted his right to be who he is? Then he wouldn't obey have obeyed the Father unto death on a cross. And where would you and I be? You see? Then it says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I'll have reason to glory because I didn't run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. It's a very interesting metaphor. He's using a kind of religious terminology known in that day. He's saying if you people become a sacrifice, you, you kind of make the sacrifice of service, I don't mind being poured on upon it. What does that mean? It's called a libation. 
ancient Greeks and Hebrews sometimes would pour wine on a sacrificial offering, kind of to add to it. He said, I don't mind if that characterizes my life. I don't mind if my life is poured out as a libation on top of your offering as long as you are with humility serving Christ. That's what he's. In other words, he said, I don't mind humbling myself and giving up my right even to live if you give up yours for the service of Christ. That's essentially what he's saying. So, verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. You know the expression, misery loves company? It does. But joy loves company too. Join my joy, Paul says, in losing your hold on your own selfish existence. It isn't about you. It's about the glory of God. But I hope in the Lord Jesus, verse 19, to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. You know his proven worth. He served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. He's in jail. He doesn't know if he's getting out. That's why he's saying I got to see how things turn out. But in the meantime, I'm sending Timothy. Why does he offer Timothy here? Every time you read of Timothy and Paul in the New Testament, Timothy is in a uh, subordinate position. Timothy is, in essence, Paul, uh, oftentimes Paul's errand boy. Whenever Paul had to send a message to someone, had to get something done, he called on Timothy. We don't have one bit of evidence in the New Testament that Timothy was bothered by it. Paul is offering Jesus as the premier example of humility. He's offering himself, Paul, I'm willing to be poured out as a drink offering. Now he's offering Timothy. Timothy, too, notice. He sublimated his own rights. He didn't claim his own rights. Paul! You know, stop sending me as your, as your, as your, as your errand boy. You know, why am, why am, why am the guy always giving this? Support? Timothy never did that. And then, verse 25, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus apparently was known by the Philippians. He was one of them. He went off to the mission field with Paul and Timothy and the other, other guys, Epaphroditus. But something happened, and he had to return from the mission field. You'll see in just a second. For now, notice Epaphroditus. You know what it means? Favored of Aphrodite. You know who Aphrodite is? A Greek goddess of love. This guy was probably raised in a pagan Greek home and came to know the Lord. The name didn't change. He's still Epaphroditus, you know, beloved of Aphrodite, but he's really beloved of God. Uh, labels can get you in trouble. A lot of people in the world call themselves Christians but don't live like it. A lot of people don't have Christian names but live like it. The important thing is not a label. It's how you live. Every time they do a poll of Americans to see how many Christians there are, it's like 70 or 80%. Well, that's not true. Seven out of ten Americans is a uh, devoted follower of Jesus Christ, a saved uh, one who has yielded to the Lordship of Christ. No way. I don't believe that for one. I mean, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in if 70, seven out of ten Americans. Are you kidding me? So Epaphrodite didn't have, you know, maybe the right name for crying out loud, but he ended up living the right life. And so uh, Paul says he's a brother. We have fellowship with one another because we have the same father. He's a fellow worker. We serve together. He's a fellow soldier. We're in the battle together. And then it says, see, he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard he was sick. Epaphrodite got real sick. 
in the mission field. He had a, a sensitive heart. He heard that his uh, people back in Philippi heard he was sick and they were concerned. Their concern caused him to be really concerned. The word is distressed, but in Greek it's great emotional anguish. He was struggling emotionally. So Paul says, verse 27, indeed he was sick to the point of death. He almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him also, also on me, so that I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. Hither, the greatest missionary to ever live, the apostle Paul, was willing to admit, man, if Epaphrodite died, I'd be grieving big time. Today, sometimes we say to one another, aren't you over your grief yet? Don't you trust God? See, we don't let people have the experience of their emotions. Paul said, man, I w I'd be unashamed. I'd be grieving like a dog if Epaphrodite died. But it says, verse 28, Therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. So Epaphrodite got sick in the field and he, had, uh, he was struggling emotionally. And Paul sent him back from the field back to Philippi. Uh, and it says, receive him, verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. You know why Paul's saying all that stuff? A guy goes into the mission field. You know, people have a party and they lay hands on him and they pray for him and they raise support and they're all excited. But he ends up having to leave the mission field. Can't stay there. In Epaphrodite's case, he got physically sick, but also emotionally he was struggling. So he returned home from the mission field. And Paul is anticipating they may show him disrespect. They may not hold him in high regard. They may think, oh, my goodness, you're a failure. You have no commitment. You couldn't do it. And Paul is saying, that had nothing to do with it. This is some guy. Hold him in high regard. Man, he was with me even to the point of death. Yes, he's coming home. Not that because there's a weakness in his moral character, but there is a weakness in his constitution. Now, I want to tell you what we do in churches today. We don't distinguish the two. So if there's a Christian who's struggling emotionally, we think there's a weakness not just in emotion, but in moral character. So a Christian today who struggles with depression or anxiety has to go underground for fear that the rest will judge that struggling person as being inferior morally. Now, some depression is due to sin. I know that. Some anxiety is due to sin, but not all. Why is it that we rally around someone who just got a cancer diagnosis, as we should? Why is it that we rally around someone who's got a heart condition or a liver problem or something like that? But when someone struggles emotionally, as did Epaphroditus, they got to stay in the closet for fear they'll be judged as being uh, a sinful or a subpar Christian. Folks, we got to stop pulling that. This organ, the brain, which drives depression and anxiety, is a physical organ, a organ, no different than your liver, your heart, and your spleen, and all the rest. That organ actually is the command center for all that other stuff. Why can all this other stuff go awry, but we don't permit this to? And this is run by chemicals, neurotransmitters, and they can go awry in various ways. Why does a Christian have to be ashamed about getting medicinal help to repair this when you don't mind that Christian going through chemotherapy, this therapy, all kinds of stuff, taking these pills and those pills for everything else? Why are they not judged as an inferior, immoral uh, 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 Christian? 
but the one who has emotional struggles is Epaphroditus was experiencing deep emotional anguish. Someone could speak into his life and say, Epaphroditus, grow up, toughen up, stop being so thin-skinned. Look what Jesus did for you. Stop it. Stop crying. Dry your tears. Paul said, no. There's nothing wrong with Epaphroditus in terms of his character and his devotion and commitment, but it's not good for him to be in the mission field. He needs to be home. He needs to be in a different environment. Why? Does he have weak character? No, but he has a weak constitution, physically and emotionally. Why can't we Christians allow one another to have a weak constitution and be loved, embraced, and accepted as followers of Jesus Christ? Why do we have to heap guilt upon those who struggle? And you know what happens to Christians who struggle with depression and anxiety but feel like they're made to be ashamed in church? I'll tell you what they do. They kill themselves. They commit suicide because they've got no, no other place to go. I think we are growing in our churches to recognize that someone with a weak constitution is not necessarily a weak Christian. I think we're getting better at this. And I think people are coming out of the closet. Why am I so incensed about this? Because I struggle with depression and anxiety. That's why. And I don't want to be judged. I dare you. Make a surprise visit to my house anytime you want and see what I'm doing. I have nothing to be ashamed of. I'm not, I don't, I'm not in pornography. I've never had affair, an affair. I don't uh, drink, smoke, toke, chew, I don't, whatever the words are. I'm in a marriage for, since 1973, you do the math. I can't figure it out. One woman. Uh, we're not going anywhere. She's got me trained. I got her trained. We're not going to. Uh, I, I have a good track record. I've been a Christian since 1973. I dare you. Get the FBI. Check me out. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you this. I struggle with depression and anxiety. If you come to the conclusion that I'm of weak moral character, prove it. I'm of weak constitution, I admit it, but I, I, don't, I do not have a weak moral character. So there, I'm out of the closet. Oh, did I tell you I'm also gay? Oh, no, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. You only admit so much on a given Sunday. All right, there we have it, folks. I want you to notice something. I completed an entire chapter for those of you who do not believe in miracles. Thank you so much. <laughs> Richard, Richard is timing me. <laughs> A wise guy. Look at this. Hey, God bless you folks. Lord willing, we'll see you next week. See you.